Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Josh. And I'm Chava. And today we are talking about canons, Jewish fandom, Star Trek, literary, all things canon. But first, how's it going, Chava? How was your Pesach? It was very nice. We had just moved, so we didn't even unbox our kitchen at all. We just uh, unboxed our Passover stuff. It was nice. It was kind of sad not to be with family at all, but but we still had some mozzarella balls. How was yours? A mozzarella on the head. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was good. We weren't sure until the last minute what was going to happen with Seder's, and then like we had like a weird fluke of events where my kid was sick. And so she was at a daycare. And so my wife couldn't go to Workly as a teacher. And then the kid was better and had a negative COVID test. And we realized like, oh, we've been like eight days without seeing anyone and have a negative COVID test. We can actually like go do satyrs. So we we had like a night at um, at each set of parents, which was unexpected and nice. And and we did it. It was like a satyr that was made for a two year old, but but it was good. And I am really glad that we did that because I really like Passover and, and like the satyr is important to me and, and you can't keep a, a toddler's attention for mm-hmm. a Zoom satyr. So it either would have j- just been her having dinner with us or nothing. Um, yeah, <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I love Passover too. There's just so much to do. It's just so traditional and ritual. I really like that about it. There's an unbelievable amount of Star Trek news. I feel like this podcast is not even the right place to get your Star Trek news, but <laughs> where where do I even begin? This podcast is where I get my Star Trek news. <laughs> Lower Deck Season 2 coming in the summer, Season 3 greenlit. We got a trailer for Discovery, and Season 4 of Discovery is coming this year in 2021. And Strange New Worlds is in production. Prodigy, they release some stills, and it's going to have a holographic Captain Janeway and be in the Delta Quadrant. Oh, and Star Trek Picard Season 2 is in production and will come out next year, 2022. We had a great Reb Alert today, and I think the Reb Alert is like really relevant to the stuff that we are going to talk about. We watched the Enterprise episode Awakening and the Discovery episode New Eden. So why don't we uh, jump into Reb Alert and then we'll we'll come back in a little bit and talk some Star Trek. Sounds good. Delay that order, number one. Red Alert. Lex Rothberg is the Strategic Initiatives Coordinator at the Institute for the Next Jewish Future and the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Judaism Unbound, a project that catalyzes and supports grassroots efforts by disaffected but hopeful American Jews to reimagine and redesign Jewish life in America for the 21st century. Lex has a certificate in interfaith Jewish family engagement from Hebrew College and was just recently ordained from Aleph, Alliance for Jewish Renewal. Welcome to Reb Alert, Lex. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for being here today. So about a month ago, Chava and I were leading a Zoom seminar at the Jewish Museum of Maryland, and we were talking about Spock. And I mentioned that in some of the Star Trek novels, Spock is shown to have Jewish ancestors on his human side. And before I could even finish the sentence, we get an all caps comment in the public chat the novels are not canon and a train of exclamation points, which which is correct. <laughs> so what is a canon and why should we care about them? Oh, man, that's a great start for me. Um, first off, I'm not convinced we should care about them. So I'll start there. But uh, at least what we've been taught, the boundaries of them are. So that's sort of a spoiler alert of where I'm going. 
But to get there first, canons are, I'll start with what I think is a pretty acceptable definition, which is to say like the set of often texts, but maybe not just text. We're talking about Star Trek. So, you know, the set of texts or the set of films or the set of TV episodes or the set of ideas and stories and narratives that have been dubbed by a certain group of people to be, whether it's sacred in like a religious context or I don't know, special or holding truth in them in a more secular context. I think what that commenter was clearly saying is, ah, so there's novels, sure, but what happens in those novels is not holding the same truth in this universe that other kinds of works are, which is that commenter's opinion. I would argue to get to the why should we care about them point, I would argue that that's, you know, one take. And what I spend a lot of time trying to do in the context of Jewish canons of different kinds is to poke at them and say, should we care about them? Or how should we care about them? Or how should we approach the things specifically that have been left out of the canon? Or you might even argue excised from the canon. That's the more radical verb to use. I actually think that some of the texts we think of as sort of never made it in were seen as deeply sacred and sort of canonical at certain points by certain groups of Jews. And there's a way in which they were cut out more than they were just sort of never marked as sacred. Thinking of books like Enoch, thinking of books like Jubilees here in like the biblical context. But basically, that's a long answer to say canons are what certain groups of people mark as having a special status. And I would argue because they're just sort of marked by a certain group of people, there's nothing to stop other groups of people or other individuals from saying, you know what, maybe it's not in your canon, but it is in mine. And that's how I would respond to somebody like that commenter. I know that you have a longstanding interest in the Book of Jubilees, which is not in the rabbinic Jewish canon, although I think it is in like the Ethiopian Jewish canon, which kind of expands the Ethiopian Christian biblical canon, interestingly. Huh. So what what is the Book of Jubilees? And and how did a book like that uh, end up outside of kind of the 24 core books that uh, that we think of today as the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible? Cool. So the second part of that question, I don't have a really deeply rooted historical answer to, so I'm going to mostly dodge it. I will try to guess, but I just want to say that it's guessing. The first part of that question is very fun. What is the Book of Jubilees? The first answer is it's my new favorite book. I love this book. I think it is incredible. I think it is a document that has the potential to unlock something in people religiously or intellectually that is really important. And so one piece of that is simply the fact that it's not in the biblical canon, like you talked about, that it's not in the Tanakh. I think that there is a great power in people today whether they're Christians or Jews, by the way, but anybody who's from a tradition that sort of has the Bible as a core text, like for those people to look back and say, ah, it was a choice that some people made. Not, you know, it wasn't like a room gathered and said, ah, these are the books that are going to be in the Bible. That's not my understanding of how it happened. But over centuries, certain books were marked as canonical and others weren't. And there's actually disagreement between groups of Christians about what those are and, of course, between Christians and Jews about what those books are. Mm-hmm. I think that Jubilees is powerful just because it's one of the many books that was sort of seen as canonical by some in certain eras and then wasn't. And like you said, it still is for some people. So that's number one. But that's not anything about Jubilees. The things about Jubilees I think are exciting are a lot. First, it is a different telling of the book of Genesis. 
Another name for Jubilees is Little Genesis. And it actually goes a little bit into the Exodus story of the Bible. And it, it inverts the order. The book starts with Moses on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, talking with this like angel figure who appears to be like an intermediary between Moses and God or something. So it's like a flashback because you start there and then the angel like tells the story of Genesis to Moses. And so the whole thing is like you're in this flashback from Moses' time to earlier times and you hear about all the characters from Genesis. You hear about Adam and Eve and then you hear about Noah and then you hear about uh, Abraham and all of, all of the generations that continue on. And the stories are mostly the same, but there's specific ways in which they differ that open up really interesting questions. So one example I like to talk about is one of the more famous stories of the book of Genesis, which is the the binding of Isaac. You know, Abraham famously takes his son Isaac up this mountain and he sacrifices him or seeks to sacrifice him. There's actually some evidence that initially the story was that he actually went through with it. Um, But putting that aside, the story we have now is that Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. And, you know, that brings up some really important moral questions. Now, the author of Jubilees, hundreds of years after the Genesis framing was written, has clearly some issues theologically with this story. Like, how could this happen? And, and why are we tracing ourselves as a, as a people, we being like Jews? Why are we tracing ourselves to this guy, Abraham, who was willing to kill his son? And, it, and it's not clear why. So the story remains almost exactly the same, except at the beginning, there's a radical twist, which is, oh, by the way, this demon figure, Mastema, tells God to like do this whole test. It's not that God just tests Abraham, because that kind of God would be like, why would God do that? Why would God set that up? It's actually like this evil demonic figure that appears to be like, I don't know, it's sort of almost like the, the character in the book of Job. That's Satan, the Satan. Mm-hmm. And that character is the one who sort of makes this situation happen. And then the story is kept exactly the same. But when all of a sudden it's not God who said, yo, go up and kill your son. It's this demon figure, Mastema, that sort of said, hey, God, like do this test. I don't really think that your Abraham figure is so great. That shifts what's happening in a way that sort of, I think, makes this Jubilee's author more comfortable with the theology of the story and with like believing in a God that would do things like this. And so that kind of thing shows up over and over again in the book. The other thing that I think is so powerful about Jubilees is actually not the content of how it distinguishes itself from Genesis, but it's its rhythm. The entire book of Jubilees, as the title suggests, is built around the framework of the biblical Jubilee year. So in the Bible, it talks about how you have this cycle of seven years called Shemitah, and every seventh year, there's a sabbatical year. And every time you have a seventh sabbatical year, so every time you have seven sevens, there's a Jubilee year, which biblical scholars have yelling matches with each other about whether the Bible meant that to be the 50th year, so after seven sevens, or the 49th year, which is the seven seventh itself. In Jubilees, the period of time that is called a Jubilee is 49 years. And all of human history is doled out through numbers of jubilees. So it would say like on the first day of the first year of the first jubilee, God 
does the first steps of the creation. And then every person in the Bible, in Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, their birth is marked by like, ah, they were born in the third year of the 27th Jubilee Mm. or whatever. And it creates this very rhythmic sense of how the world works. And the entire thing from day one of human history to the Ten Commandments, I think it's the Ten to either the Ten Commandments or like something notable in the book of Exodus is 49 cycles of 49 years. So it creates this like completion idea around the number seven that for me as a math geek is really powerful. And I dig stories like that. You know, in the fan communities, canon is taken to mean like, like the continuity, the set of facts. And yet the biblical canon seems quite comfortable with contradictory narratives sitting side by side, whether that's, you know, chronicles retelling kings and, and the books after that, or, or even, um, two stories of creation sitting right next to each other in Genesis. There's a certain segment of fan communities that express their fandom through maybe an obsession or detailing with the canon. And yet it, it's almost limiting. Like if you were to go to Memory Alpha, which is the, you know, one of several kind of repositories of the Star Trek canon and look up an original series episode called The Ultimate Computer, you would find like a really detailed description of the ships and the mad scientist and the duotronic processor and all -hmm. these little details. And yet you would find not one note about the fact that the entire episode is a morality tale about 1960s working class anxieties about automation and unemployment. Hmm. So do you think that canon can kind of bind and limit the way we understand a, a body of work and, you know, separating information into like the official and the unofficial? Yeah, I'd super think that. And I, yeah, I appreciate the question because that's exactly where I'm going and where, when I said before, like, I'm not sure if we should accept canons. That's what I'm getting at is I think inherently a canon must do what you're describing. It's not that it can do that. It's not that canons can be limiting. It's that they must, by definition, be limiting. They, they don't exist if they don't limit. A canon only exists when there are things that are not canon. And so when you have certain stories, certain ideas like you're describing, the ways that canons work are certain people, usually people that have been granted power in some way or another, get to police boundaries and say what's in and what's not. You use the word binding. I work for an organization called Judaism Unbound. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot about things that bind and things that limit versus things that are potentially more expansive. And that's exactly where all of my thinking about canons comes from. I think we are impoverished when we don't look at all the possibilities out there for human experience, for learning, for growth, for storytelling, etc., For anybody to look at any sort of universe, so whether it's the Star Trek universe, whether it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe, whether it's Harry Potter, whether it's, you know, any number of universes or the Bible and say, well, if it's not in this specific set of texts or films or TV episodes, then it doesn't count. Why? If somebody comes along with an amazing fan fiction that tells a powerful story why not see it as a kind of true, even if the author themselves didn't write it? Why would we do that? And I think people have answers, but those answers usually stem from a need for like definition. They stem from a need for like Star Trek to have a true story, right? Like you brought up contradictions in the Bible. It's a problem when canonical documents have contradictions 
if you think that those canonical documents are true, because then you have to say, how could two different things be true? Right. But if you have an orientation to truth where multiple things can be true, then the contradictions don't matter. And the fan fictions that say that Spock did whatever Spock did that's not on the show, all of a sudden that's fine too. Because it's not about sort of delineating the true story of Star Trek. It's about saying, oh, this beautiful universe has been laid out for us that actually we ourselves as an individual viewer or as a group of viewers get to decide ourselves what the story is, which fanfics count and which don't. I'm not interested so much in community mechanisms that force some of those fan fictions to be discounted. Because I think that the reasons for that are less convincing than what we could gain by having just rich new meaning associated with these stories. At Lex, we always ask our guests uh, what their exposure is to Star Trek, and, and we have people who run the whole gamut. So uh, where, where do you fall in that knowledge of Star Trek canon and beyond? Super low. I do not have much Star Trek knowledge. I've watched like one of the movies. I don't even remember which Star Trek movie. I, I don't even know. I like probably not one that people see as the best. <laughs> I know the general like names of core characters. Like saying Spock doesn't confuse me. Like I know who that is. I can picture Spock in my head. That, that's in the ether. <laughs> yeah. But I don't have anything beyond what like a typical person on the street would have. I do have a lot of people in my life who I like a lot who are big Trekkies. So I feel like a positive relationship to star trek as a person because like lots of people that i care about really really are like a deep level of fandom with star trek and i sense part of why i don't watch actually is because i think if i started watching i'd probably get like totally <laughs> bought in and i'd like need to watch everything it, it could be and a sink <laughs> I'm, I'm scared of that I, I i don't have anything i'm not somebody who's gonna say like you know, it's not for me or I'm not a sci-fi guy. Like, I, I think I could be, but I haven't been yet. I've been thinking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the 1996 film Star Trek First Contact. Cool. This film that came out in the 90s, in a lot of ways, if you were to like sit with the Star Trek encyclopedia and watch this film in 1996, you would have been real mad. It rewrites the early interstellar history of Earth and the nature of one of their core villains and makes a historical figure a human when previously he was an alien. And yet... Star Trek fans, by and large, don't care because the movie's really good and people like it. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about Esther and how it is the one book that is not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls for all kinds of hypothesized yeah. reasons. Maybe they they just didn't like it. Maybe it was only in the other canon because it's this beloved, whimsical tale. So... You know, we think about a canon as like this set of what officials or people with power say is in and out. How much of it might really just come down to like, like do people like this? Do people want it around? So that's where I think it's murky historically, right? I think it's probably really true that a lot of what won was related to just sort of what people liked. Now, I think that there's a lot of tricky stuff. I don't know about Jubilees and whether Jubilees was super popular among different groups of people around the time of the Second Temple or whatever. I do think that, say, the Book of Enoch, my understanding of it, though I'm really not an expert on this, is that the Book of Enoch and like the genre of books of Enoch, there's actually multiple different books of Enoch, were super popular. 
And it's easy to get why, because I mean, for people that are into Star Trek, for people that are into fantasy or sci-fi, like Enoch is a book that exists because it noticed in the book of Genesis, there's this weird aside about the Nephilim, about like these creatures that appear to be hybrid deities and humans. There's just like a quick sentence about them right before the Noah's Ark story. And the book of Enoch runs wild with this and tells an entire story based on these sexual interactions between certain like gods, I'm going to say, plural, like with, with like figures that are not necessarily God, God itself, but like with divine figures and with humans. And then there's like all this stuff about that. And there's trips up to heaven. And I say trips because it's kind of psychedelic and feels like the authors of this may have been very high. But like that book was popular by my understanding of different eras of history. Now, it's not canonized by Jews for reasons that I don't really know. But I think there's a mixture of the factor you just talked about where like, look, if enough people love something, you kind of have to accept it after a while. It's hard to excise something that people really just love. But I do still think there are certain folks that can have veto power. And I think historically this plays out a lot around men get to have more veto power than women almost always. And wealthier people get to have more veto power than non-wealthy people almost always. And all of that stuff becomes very important. And you know, if you're a king and you have control over some of these books, then you get to say the books that aren't that nice to you or to your family Like, those aren't going to count as much. Like, there's all those factors. And so I agree with you that there are ways in which canons can be defined, especially today, by just, like, what people gravitate towards. I'm not so much – it relates to my orientation to, like, the free market, right? Like, I don't think it totally works. I don't think that just enough people liking something means that it will win. I think other forces can and do step in to cynically stand in the way of that happening. And the counterfactual is fascinating to think of, like, what does Judaism in 2021 look like if Jeremiah doesn't go knock down the high places? Or if, I mean, I guess even some rabbis in the the time of the Mishnah still thought Enoch was in because they're quoting it in the Talmud. And and to think about, like, what, what could spin out there? Last summer, we had Dan on the show, your uh, co-host on Judaism Unbound, and we were talking about a next-gen episode called Darmok that's about a species that speak entirely through uh, metaphor. Like if I said to you, um, you know, Picard with his with his face in his hand, you might know the Picard facepalm meme, even without uh, knowing Star Trek or knowing the whole literature, and their yeah. whole language is like that. And we talked about how like this insider knowledge can kind of signal to community members who's in, but also put this gate up to like keep people out. And I think that's very true in the Star Trek world too, where people can almost, you know, oh, you're a fan. Well, tell me which ships were at this battle. So in what ways do you think the keeping of a canon can can set up barriers between insiders and outsiders and yeah. and and maybe like the knowledge of a canon be something that hinders a community from growing? It's massive. I mean the the gatekeeping you're talking about is huge and it's now I want to expand what I'm what I mean by canon because I've when I've been talking about Jewish canons I've really been talking about like the biblical canon which is important. But I think that there's also a broader maybe lowercase c canon which is just like Jewish liturgy and later rabbinic texts and whatever, and like things that people see as official in the, in the way that I was first talking about. 
And that's not just biblical books. That's all the later stuff. And there's definitely, as you suggest, this set of forces at play where people who know more of that material feel really excited to tell those who know less of that material that they aren't doing things correctly. Right. As we record this, it's shortly before Passover. I remember growing up and feeling very certain of myself that certain foods on Passover were wrong for anybody to eat. And obviously there's, you know, bread and stuff that you don't eat on Passover. But I, growing up, was certain that my friends who had things with corn syrup in it or whatever were doing it wrong. And it's not that I was like directly an asshole to them, but I'd certainly thought that they were doing it wrong because I knew that certain foods were, you know, called kitneot. I might not have known the word kitneot, but I knew certain foods that were not bread were still forbidden on Passover for Jews. Now, what I didn't know is that that's actually not true historically for like all groups of Jews. But I think what I was doing was what happens when people really buckle into canonical forms of knowledge to the point that they think that there is a true way to eat things on Passover and there are false ways to eat things on Passover. Do I want to be like totally nihilist and say like no rules exist and no truth exists? Not really. But what energizes me and excites me is the counterfactual stuff that you just talked about. So looking at texts that didn't make it in, looking at traditions that didn't quote unquote make it in, looking at all sorts of things in Jewish society or otherwise, I don't know the Star Trek examples to bring them up, but I'm sure there's plenty of counterfactuals where X could have happened in the story and totally new potentials open up. Like, I think that that process is so important because what it does is it breaks the idea that what I do, whatever it is, is inherently right. Like the second I know that there are groups of people who celebrate Passover specifically for seven days and not eight for ancient reasons, that the, some of those people actively eat the foods that, you know, I thought weren't allowed. Some of them in ways that I never thought of will specifically not drink wine on Passover which, you know, I grew up thinking four cups of wine at a Passover Seder is just universal in everybody. By the way, I'm referring to Karaites with the wine thing. The second that happens, I have to look in and say, oh, the reason I do Jewish stuff of whatever variety is not because it is the Jewish thing that I was passed down and I have to do it that way and pass it exactly as such to my descendants. Like, oh, all of this is just choices people have made between different stories and different rituals and different ways of eating stuff on Passover. So I both get to make those same choices or different choices, and I, I don't just get to, I must. I feel like it is my responsibility right. at this point in the line for me to do the same thing that all the people before me did, which is to start new stuff up, to pick our favorites of the old stuff and play around with it, as opposed to this idea that, oh, somehow we're being passed this fragile object called Judaism that has been polished and carefully maintained as is for centuries. And now my job is to sort of keep it the same as much as I can with only making some like little aesthetic shifts to, to fit with the times or whatever. That's not what's happening. And when you realize that canons are not the same as, you know, historical absolute truth, then you're liberated from that assumption. So on Judaism Unbound, a, a few months ago, you had Yehuda Kurtzner and Claire Suffren on your show talking about their book, The New Jewish Canon, which, you know, thinks about all kinds of modern texts that they would include in the official works that would reflect Judaism today, or ones that should be thought of that. So if you were to add a document, a text, 
any kind of work to a modern Jewish canon, first of all, would you? And then what, what might that work be? To the extent that I believe canons exist at all, I would certainly always be adding and subtracting from them. Um, that's the rule. That was a good conversation that I had with them. And they, they helped me think through some of this because as I've just communicated, my real instinct is that I don't like canons. That's most of my instinct. That said, when I think about new canons, so their book is, you know, the new Jewish canon. When I think about creating our own canons that are new, and I assume for me that you know, I'll create a canon for, we'll create a canon now and in a hundred years people will ditch it, right? Like that's how I want it to be. I actually feel good about that. And I think about contemporary Jewish material and the things that I would name as canonical right now, like sure, the Torah is canonical. Is it more canonical for Jews today than Seinfeld or than Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song? On the show with Yehuda Kurtzer and Claire Suffern, we talked about Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. Because, and the, by the way, I bring that up on purpose because I know it, it comes off to people as like trivial and silly. But that's the point. Like so much of the stuff that, that has actually proven meaningful for Jews in all sorts of eras hasn't been, you know, the philosophical treatises from the Bible like Ecclesiastes. I happen to love Ecclesiastes. It's very cool. Everybody should read it. Nobody does. That hasn't necessarily been the most powerful to people. The folk stories in the Talmud about like random demon figures and all of that stuff, like that works for people in a lot of ways. And like Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song to me is a kind of contemporary Jewish canonical material that like, look, I think if I went up to every American Jew in the country and said to them, Hall of Famer, Rod Carew, he converted. (laughs) I think, by the way, that's from the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song. Um, for anybody who knows. By the way, it is factually inaccurate. Rod Carew never converted. Um, he is not Jewish, was not Jewish. He was sort of claimed as Jewish in Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song because he was married to a Jew for a long time and raised children Jewishly and was involved in his congregation, which reflects all sorts of interesting things about how we sort of claim people. Right. But um, putting that aside, I could say that statement to every American Jew, and I think probably more of them would smile and get the reference than if I picked a random reference from the book of numbers. It's not that none would understand the book of numbers thing, but I think it's similar. And so I think whether we've called it canon or not, Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song is canonical Judaism to, let's say, Gen X and millennial Jews in certain kinds of measurable ways. And I think I'd say similar things about all sorts of pop culture material. The Rugrats Hanukkah and Passover episodes played a pivotal role in American Jewish history for millions of people. I think we could look at more contemporary material, Transparent, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, go down the list, and there's elements of those shows, although maybe less than Seinfeld or some of those other biggies, that are also canonical. And so I'm naming a lot of TV and film, which I'm doing once again on purpose, because I think canon tends to read to people as read, written text. Um, mm-hmm. Now we're talking about Star Trek, so that assumption is not here, which is good. But I I do think that when when we push ourselves to accept new material generally, whether it's written or vocal or video as canon, that's good. But also when we specifically note that canons don't just mean enshrined written words from a long time ago, that matter. I would actually not really see myself as pointing to something I I want to be canon and saying that should be canon. I actually see myself as diagnosing an existing reality 
which is that Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song is canonical Judaism. Um, and it's not just Jewish culture. People often like to do that, where it's like, ah, sure, it's it's like Jewish culture and lots of Jews relate to it. Like, no, there are people who can point to that song and how it it helped them understand themselves around Christmas time and feeling like the only kid who's Jewish or whatever. And, you know, do they think all the lyrics are profound? No, but it served a key role for enough people that I would see it not just as Jewish culture, but as Judaism. And so that's where I'm making my radical move and saying Judaism is not just the set of things that have been enshrined for thousands or hundreds of years that we inherit. It's the set of things we ourselves decide and notice have have moved Jewish lives. Lex, where can our listeners find out more about you, get in touch with you, or find out about the work you do? First off, you can like send me an email. I really enjoy that. If you listen to this and have questions or thoughts or just want to yell at me, like send me an email at <laughs> lex at judaismunbound.com. Air your grievances. Um, you, yeah, exactly. Air your grievances. To see, you just referenced a canonical Jewish piece of culture, which is Seinfeld and the Festivus episode, which, you know, Frank Costanza, a deeply Jewish figure, may his memory be a blessing. Yeah, send me an email. You can listen to the Judaism Unbound podcast at judaismunbound.com. And we've had some conversations about, like you said, the new Jewish canon, which is with Yehuda Kurtzer and Clara Sufrin. And we've also had conversations about the Book of Jubilees with James Vanderkam and with Barbara Tita. So if there's stuff related to this episode that you're looking for, you can check them out. Wonderful. Lex, thanks so much for being here today. It was great to chat with you. You too. This is fun. And uh, live long and prosper. A Mecca baby's gonna do what a Mecca baby's gonna do. Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews. Josh, that was an awesome interview. Thanks. I'm sorry you couldn't join. I was really happy to do that. I've been listening to Lex's podcast, Judaism Unbound, for years. It's almost like a pre-Shabbat ritual for me because <laughs> uh, they release them Friday morning. Outside of this podcast, I do lots of stuff in like Jewish communal life and involved in my synagogue. And I, I just think that like they're such a great source of good ideas, but also really practical things that it's like, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you're someone who is like involved in a Jewish community, trying to find ways to do what you do better, I definitely recommend checking out their podcast. It's like very instructional and yet still super entertaining too. So really happy to have Lex. Awesome. So Chava, why don't we talk a little bit about what a canon is and how it intersects with the whole world of Star Trek, Jewishness, literature, everything. Yeah, that's a good idea. Do you want to take us away? I feel like people are in as intense about the Jewish canon as they are about the Star Trek canon. <laughs> or maybe I should say that the reverse way. People are as intense about the Star Trek canon as they are about the Jewish one. So, Josh, what is canonical Star Trek? Okay, do you want the one-sentence answer or the, the dissertation? <laughs> <laughs> Can we... Settle somewhere in the middle of those two. Okay. <laughs> Maybe All closer right. to the one sentence. <laughs> the one sentence answer is... The Star Trek canon is all the Star Trek from films and television shows. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> the, the dissertation... <laughs> is it's complicated and it's changed over time. So like the line we get from CBS, who's the rights holder from Star Trek, is that like the canonical Star Trek is TV and film. And like, what does that even mean? It means 
I think from like a practical level, it means that like they try to keep continuity in those, though they don't care too much about it all the time. And that things that happen in like books, novels, games, comics, obviously fan materials, they don't think of those things as like binding the writers of the TV shows. But it's like changed over time. Like for a very long time, the animated series was not considered canonical Trek. And I think there's like some good reasons why that is. And there's like some parts of it that are like a little silly and don't make sense. Although that's true of all Star Trek. Like we watched the Enterprise episode Awakening and they're in a desert on Vulcan called The Forge. Well, that desert comes from the animated series from an episode called Yesteryear that I think like really captured the imagination of a lot of Trek writers. Not so many years after uh, that episode aired, and exactly at the same time as the animated series came out on Blu-ray, CBS or Paramount at the time was like, yeah, it's it's canon now. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry had some really wacky ideas of canon, which was, I think, like a certain type of fans. It was sort of like, anything I don't like isn't canon. So he famously declared that all the movies after the motion picture, which are like, uh, Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, Voyage Home, and Final Frontier. I think he passed away before any more came out. He said they were not canon. And probably he said that because the studio was mad at him and didn't let him get involved in them. <laughs> he also implies in his novelization of the motion picture that the entire original series is not canon and that it's sort of like an exaggeration of the events that actually took place that should have been sort of like more subdued. Um, so if we take all the entire Roddenberry comments on canon together, then the only piece of Star Trek canon is the motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make sense. No. But if we think about like what a canon really means, like in a literary sense, canon's not about what's the official part of the story. It's more like what are the important pieces of works. Then I think it's impossible to tease out the novels and games and even even some fan stuff, and also like the oral history of Trek. Like, there's a famous story about how after the first season of the original series, uh, Nichelle Nichols wanted to quit the show and go, you know, pursue other projects, and that uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was a fan of the show, called Nichelle Nichols and asked her not to quit because the image of a black woman on the bridge of a starship in primetime television was important to the civil rights movement. And she stayed on the show because of that. How can that not be part of the canon of Star Trek, like one of the core things that we think about and read about and pass on about Star Trek? And I think there's some room for people to have their own canons as they want. There's like endless debates about everything I don't like isn't canon. I remember even like being a teenager and seeing this on the internet of like, oh, I Enterprise can't be canon because yada, yada, yada. And Discovery, oh, the nacelles are this color wrong. This isn't canon. Like in a certain sense, even though I think that's very silly, I'm kind of okay with like, if you want to have your own thing in your head about an entertainment product... <laughs> You can do that. Not hurting um, anybody. <laughs> it's funny how the stories take on a life of their own. Like, okay, so when Discovery came out, people complained online that it was a canon violation that they all had the arrowhead emblem, like kind of the triangly delta that we all associate with Star Trek, saying that, oh, in the TOS era, every ship had their own patch. Well, we have a memo from Bob Jessman, who was a producer on the original series, saying that 
it was only because of a costuming error that some <laughs> characters on other ships in the original series had different patches. And yet the legend persists. And that's maybe okay. The legend can have its own life. And if people want that to be part of their canon, all right by me. This is something we talked about in the very first episode. If you limit yourself to saying like only canonical Star Trek is the film and television, I guess it imposes a certain rigor and discipline, but it's limiting in a way that like isn't useful for understanding like the show in its broader context. Yeah. And I I think that it's actually kind of similar in the Jewish context as well. Yeah. (laughs) So what is a canonical Jewish text? It has also developed over history, but kind of stopped quite a while ago. Or did it? Presently (laughs) developing. I mean, I guess it depends who you ask. Basically, what's generally considered the the, like canonical Jewish texts and like the authoritative uh, source from God basically is the Tanakh. And this is a collection of 24 books and it includes the first five books of the Pentateuch or the Chumash. And it includes the 13 books of the Nevi'im or the prophets. And then there are a bunch of other writings or selected scriptures that were sort of included. And then like there's debate about which ones should have been included, which ones shouldn't be included. Kind of the basic answer, I guess the the one sentence-ish answer. But what is interesting to me is that that's very limiting and like has little to do with how like Jews actually live their lives and like the context that they use and like the authoritative sources that they choose to live their lives by. Rabbinic Judaism recognizes those as the canonical form. Like you were saying before, it's like Well, but then also there's the Mishnah and the commentaries and the Talmud. All of these are also kind of canonical, at least to me they are. And I think that to most Orthodox Jews, and probably most non-Orthodox Jews as well, they would be considered canonical. I guess they're canonical in the sense that like, the Talmud itself contains the claim that it is the oral tradition passed on from Sinai and like given together with the written law. But that's like a funny thing to put forward because the Talmud is like an incomplete document that continues being written over the centuries and arguably is like still incomplete. And also is very obviously people disagreeing. So like, if it's like, given if it's divine, then like, what is God arguing with themselves? There are parts of like the Jewish approach to canonical text that I really appreciate. Looking at a page of Talmud, it's like a spiral through the tradition of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Because you have like, Mishnah in the middle, and then the next layer of commentary around that, of like the Gemara, of like a later generation of rabbis. And then around that, you have like the major commenters who preceded the invention of the printing press, basically, is why why they get there. And then in the margins, you have medieval rabbis' commentaries around that. And in a modern publication, you might find that there's like modern commentary in that. And this presents a way where like the Talmud in a certain way can never be completed and that that spiral can like keep building out forever. Now, the willingness of modern Jewish communities to keep building that spiral out or to do something very radical and be like, this page doesn't matter to me anymore. That That is much more difficult. Uh, but I do appreciate how the text creates a conversation through time and history. Mm-hmm. And it's very much like, even though it's a conversation, it's like structured as like, 
canon text. Interestingly, biblical scholars and rabbinic sources look a little bit at the, the history of the canon differently. Many rabbinic sources claim that the canon was closed at the end of the Babylonian exile, and that kind of is in line with much of what is written towards the end of uh, prophets. But the earliest and most explicit testimony of a Hebrew canonical list comes from Josephus, 37 CE to 100 CE, so like first century. It refers to sacred scriptures divided into three parts. So that's like what I mentioned before, the five books of the Torah, the Chumash, the Nevi'im, and then uh, the Ketuvim. And that was a list of actually 22 books. Um, and it's thought that perhaps like some of the more recent books like Esther and uh, Ecclesiastes weren't yet considered canonical. And basically, he decided that they were canonical because they're divinely inspired. And that there are other books like, and I, I could see Maccabees being considered that way. I, I don't see them as divinely inspired. I don't know. Do you? I mean, I don't know how I feel about divine inspiration in general as a concept. <laughs> yeah. I think like the rabbis are just wrong when they say it closed with the Babylonian exile. We can take a book like like Daniel, and basically pinpoint exactly when it was written, because there's a whole bunch of like predictions of the future in it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the predictions start being wrong, those are the ones that were after the book was published. Right. Um, if you approach the text with the belief that like nobody can tell the future, then you can figure out within like an 18 month gap of when that book was written. And it's in the it's in the Greek period, like it's after the events of uh, the Maccabean War. The way that I actually see it, though, is that the text that's used in Jewish study is what we called the Mesura. This like group of people, the Mesorites, they were groups of Jewish scribe scholars who worked from around the end of the 5th century to the 10th centuries CE. And they were based primarily in early medieval Palestine in the cities of Tiberias and Jerusalem. Each group of these Mesorites compiled a list of pronunciation and grammatical guides. So kind of like where the Nekudot came from are, are these groups of people. The earliest manuscript from the Mesara, that's like 9th century, which is interesting because that's like what we consider the, the canon text. And that's what by we, I mean rabbis. But there are now we have predated texts like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm for us, but you could you could piece it together already before that there were many different versions of these books circling around in kind of that pre-Masoret period. And the Masoretes do a phenomenal job of stabilizing the document. Like they, they create a document that stays more stable over the last thousand to fifteen hundred years than basically any other document that is preserved by a, a group of scholars and, and passed on. But like the notion that because of the work they did, the text is unchanged is ridiculous because the Masoretes wouldn't have been doing the thing that they were doing in the first place if they weren't concerned about the loss of the tradition. Ultimately, a few words here or a passage in a different order doesn't like change Judaism, but I think that being open to the changes that happen in the document over time can change our approach to Judaism and like thinking about these books as like written by people who have interests and sometimes those interests are like very mundane and political and sometimes those interests are like trying to understand god and the universe and everything and i think that can give us like broader horizons when we're looking at the jewish canonical body definitely i think actually the word canon comes from like a catholic approach where they split their bible into the canon and 
what they call the Apocrypha, which is mostly made up of like the parabiblical texts. Uh, so things like um, Maccabees. And then like out of that Catholic approach, we have this idea of the Western canon, like the so-called body of high culture, music, art, literature, philosophy that's that's seen as like the important ones and taught in the academy and, you know, subject to endless debate. I think it would be strange to not mention Achebe here. Chino Achebe is an author and critical theorist, and in the 1970s, he wrote an article called An Image of Africa that I think maybe not kicked off, but brought to a new level sort of the academic critique of the existence of the Western canon. And Achebe is arguing for the removal of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness from the canon basically on the basis of its racism. And he argues that, like, even though the novel has a somewhat anti-colonial message, Conrad is, like, fundamentally dehumanizing of Africans, and that on that basis it should be excised from the Western canon, which is not to say that, like, people shouldn't read the book, but he's saying it shouldn't be one of the go-to books that, like, every English class gets assigned. And it's an interesting argument. What do you think about that? And what happens if we apply that to Star Trek? I think it's really interesting because we know that this is like kind of an ongoing argument in the United States about like removing racist, canonized texts. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I think I'm trying to put it into a context that like I feel I can have an opinion on because like I also don't think that we should really decide for like another marginalized group whether or not they're claim that something should be uncanonized, uh, should be or not. But I think, for example, like Mein Kampf, like it's not canon. Well, I don't think Mein Kampf is part of the literary canon. No, it's not. But like <laughs> something like that, do I think that should be taught in like German schools? Kind of, yeah. So you you would take sort of like a teach the controversy view? guess I would sort of teach the controversy view, but that that requires that everybody agrees on something being like absolutely wrong that we should say like see this is how everything's wrong in this um, mm -hmm. and if like that is not totally agreed upon which i think is how it is in the states a little bit is like then maybe just remove it yeah i think w with star trek like i'm okay with excising the worst of the worst this again goes back to like the two definitions of canon the like memory alpha editor canon of like if it happened on a tv show we take it as fact and, like, the body of work that we consider important. And I'm more than happy to be like, you know what, TNG Code of Honor, the episode where famously the director was fired in the middle of the shoot for anti-black racism, and yet they still aired the episode and it's horrific. I'm perfectly okay being like, if you're watching Next Gen, just skip that one. Doesn't matter. Just, just skip it. Doesn't have to be part of your Star Trek anymore. I agree with that. And I also think that, like, if we do remove it... I almost think that removing it is not as helpful as putting like an advisory around it. Hmm. Like if, for example, Netflix decided, okay, we're going to take that episode out and we're going to uh, make a point of it. Once it's gone, it has no effect on like anybody who's actually watching the show. But I think is useful, I guess, is if around that episode at the start, they were, they were like, this is what happened with this episode. 
we think it's extremely problematic. Our recommendation is to skip it. In the early 2000s, Warner Brothers re-released a whole bunch of classic Looney Tunes. There's like lots and lots of racism in, in early Looney Tunes. And I like the approach that they took. Whoopi Goldberg, Guinan, <laughs> appears at the beginning of each of the DVDs. And basically, she, she does what you're saying. She reads a disclaimer saying that some of the cartoons here are racist and that they were uh, wrong even in the time that they appeared, but that removing these images and jokes from the collection would be the same as saying that these prejudices never existed and mm-hmm. that that would be wrong. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good path to take. Yeah, I guess I do too. And like, you don't want to only read about the history of something in a history book. Right. Yeah. That being said, I'm perfectly okay with removing the celebration of things. Absolutely. Like, people don't learn, you don't learn history from a statue. No. <laughs> Take those racist statues down. And when it comes to the canon, I guess you have to weigh its importance and its racism because the Western canon is just fine without the dehumanization that is in Heart of Darkness, I think. I think there has to be like some balancing and proportionality. And and that's really the only way forward. And that sort of like overall kind of dictates aren't a good way to go. I also think that like more recently, this whole thing with Dr. Seuss books, I actually agree completely with having removed them. And the reason for that is because it's directed at very small children. And like they don't have the critical thinking skills to be able to like take in an advisory and be like, yeah, this is wrong. It's like Mm -hmm. literally teaching your kids exactly what is contained in that book. And like, they're not going to get it. Yeah. If you look at Seuss's own works over the course of his life, he like removed more and more racism and did some self-correcting. And I think that his family are good stewards of his legacy by, Mm -hmm. uh, by removing a, a small number of unpopular Seuss books and, I I would imagine they'll probably do some revisions and release them out again, which doesn't erase the original. (laughs) Like, if you are a historian of Dr. Seuss, like, that previous edition is still there for you to go write about and learn about. It's just saying the one you're going to read to your two-year-old at bedtime won't have racist depictions in in it anymore. And, And I'm all for that. Yeah. It's like, what is it that you're teaching your children? Yeah. Yeah. So should we talk some Star Trek? Sure. You have not seen so much Enterprise before. No. And I know you watched not just Awakening, but the whole like Vulcan Forge trilogy. Yeah. What'd you think? I actually really liked it. I was I was like, whoa, do I want to watch Enterprise now? Like, <laughs> what is happening in this? You've got faith of the heart now. Yeah, I was like, oh, my... Uh- my desire for this is is increasing now. I was kind of just fascinated by the like, I mean, I guess the the canon building. Um, yeah, learning so much about the history of Vulcan and just the fact that Enterprise predates. I just thought that was really cool, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh, maybe I'll convince Adam to watch it with me. <laughs> This is definitely considered like one of the high points of the show, but I also think that it captures a lot of the things that like people who do like the show like about it. And I'm like not the biggest Enterprise fan, but I I really like this trilogy. And this one like builds off of a storyline that had started like in the very first episode. So maybe worth a watch. Season four, they kind of knew they were on the bubble and they do kind of more fan servicey stuff. You know, we're talking canons and non-canons. I think this was a time when they decided like, 
we're going to build that connective tissue Mm -hmm. to the original series. And like throughout the fourth season, all those kind of like journey to Babel species, the Tellarites, Andorians, the Vulcans, even like the little ones, like I think like the Coordinates or whatever (laughs) popping up and and they do really fun stuff with them. They almost feel like fan films, (laughs) um, which is not a dig on them. I, I, I like these episodes. But that is like a thing that a certain kind of fan might have sat around thinking like, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if we saw (laughs) the Vulcans and the Andorians fighting each other and Starfleet has to come solve it? Is there anything wrong with that? No. I think one of the controversial things with Enterprise is like the the villainous Vulcans or Vilkins. That that doesn't work. I should never say that again. (laughs) Stop being such a dad. Like, the Vulcans are not usually out-and-out bad guys in Enterprise the way they sort of are in this trilogy. They are, like, holding Earth back. They have some sort of quasi-colonialist overtones to them. And we also see that they're, like, a regional hegemonic power and they interfere in the governments of, like, all these other planets that we meet in the first two seasons that, like Earth, are, like, kind of early warp, Agaron, Mazar, and Corridan. And so they have this, like, quasi-colonial thing. But they're the Vulcans, you know, they're supposed to be the good guys. They, like, begrudgingly help out when when you really need them, but just, like, the smallest amount. And I thought that was, like, a super interesting thing to do. I kind of regret that the episode ends with the Vulcan president or whatever turning out to be a Romulan spy. Like, I think it would have been a more interesting approach if it was like, no, he's just he's just a bad dude and his logic is wrong. Should I give a really quick summary of this yeah, trilogy? Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. We only assign the middle one. Okay, so Earth's embassy on Vulcan gets bombed and Admiral Ford who's Archer's buddy, dies, and the Vulcans think that it was this group called the Sirenites that did it, and they're led by Tapau, a younger version of the woman who, in another episode we've watched in Hebrew School Homework, is the officiant at Spock's wedding. Mm-hmm. So Archer and T'Pol go down to Vulcan's Forge Desert to look for the Sirenites. They find a mysterious traveler. Uh, he dies in a sandstorm, but not before melding with Archer. They find the Sirenites, and T'Pau's there, along with T'Pol's mother, who is a Sirenite. Turns out that they're peaceful pacifists, and they say they're trying to follow the true path of Surak. And that Surak's Katra in that meld, the the living soul of Surak, um, may be within Archer. The like Vulcan baddies try to blow up the camp, and they're framing them for the bombing. Archer helps the Seer Knights find the Kirshara, which is like the uh, long lost original text of Surak's teachings, which uh, which they believe can like bring about reform on Vulcan. And then Enterprise has to sort of stop a war from breaking out between this like bad Vulcan leadership and Andoria. And in the end, uh, the Vulcan government is overthrown. Not before their their leader turns out to secretly be a Romulan spy, although I don't think he gets caught. And T'Pol's mom dies. That was a good summary. <laughs> so a lot going on. What do you think of like the tone of the Vulcans in this season? I remember being on like message boards in 2004 <laughs> and like all caps, the this series cannot be canon. Why would the Vulcans lie? Like that kind of stuff. And um um, I didn't always engage in it, but I definitely didn't never engage in it. <laughs> I think that it kind of connects to something that we always knew about the Vulcans in their history, that they were much more emotional and they did have wars and they did have all these conflicts. So I kind of liked that. I thought it was 
I think anytime they're not like space elves and Star Trek tells a more interesting story than that, I am on board with it. Yeah, like when they're beyond Legolas. <laughs> Some like real Dead Sea Scroll vibes in oh, this yeah. one. Archer finds the the Kirshara, the long lost, they say it's the original writings of Surak. The Dead Sea Scrolls, I think probably like um, most listeners are like familiar with them as a concept, but these were a trove of documents found between the 1940s and now. Uh, one just showed up recently. They're in caves in the Judean desert. They contain some of the oldest biblical texts in existence. They're like one of the most important archaeological finds of, uh, at least for Jewish history in the last century. And, you know, there's so much that you can construct out of them. We have Hebrew copies now of texts that we previously didn't know were even written in Hebrew. We can start to piece together perhaps like the evolution of different texts because the texts don't align with exactly all the time with the, the Masoretic text and like sometimes line up with things like the Septuagint or the Latin Vulgate or the Peshitta, like sort of these other ancient textual traditions of the Bible that we know about. And so they're super fascinating. And yet, true Bible? I don't know about that. One could ask like a scholarly argument, does like an Ur text exist? Is there like a original version of the Bible? And I think I'm inclined to say like, no. Yeah, I would also say that. I've said on the show before that I'm like partial to critical biblical studies. It sure would be great if we had some more, some more evidence for some of the core theories of those. But I, I think like the the hypotheses are persuasive overall, even if the fine points of particular points of it aren't aren't so known. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think of the Kirshara? I thought it was like very Dead Sea Scroll, like you, you like you were saying. Like even when it was cast up in light, it like looked like a scroll being opened around them. I don't know if I would say it's like Bible though, because like it's it's supposed to be the teachings of a specific person, right? Like, they don't consider that person divine. They do and they don't. I think we've seen, like, Vulcans treat the words of Surak as a holy text, and he's um, revered in a certain sense. So, I think I'm willing to say it's, like, religion-esque. I'm skeptical of the claim that the Cyrenites have that, like, ooh, finding this will change Vulcan forever. And, of course, like, we don't know what's in the Kirshara, what was different than before. But like, I don't think the Dead Sea Scrolls are super interesting, but but fundamentally, like no religion's theology changed because of them. With with the caveat that like, if they put critical biblical studies more in the public eye, that changed religion. But like the text of the documents, I don't think have like, fundamentally changed what any group believes because of the believed truth of the text. And of course, like the Dead Sea Scrolls are not claimed to be like an Ur text or or whatever. But I also think if like magically we found Josiah's Scroll of the Law, which like probably if that book existed as a book, we'll never find it. And maybe it didn't exist as a book. That is like hypothesized to have been a very early version of Deuteronomy. That would be like a super crazy archaeological find, but like, would Judaism, the religion, or any of the other religions that see the Hebrew Bible as canonical change because of it? I don't think so. Yeah, because also, while it is religious, I think it's much more like the rabbinic tradition and the the oral text. 
because mm-hmm. it, that is like the teachings of people and it's obvious that it's the teachings of people whereas like i mean the bible is written by people but it's not supposed to be seen that way that text or the the oral tradition is completely taken over the bible like we don't really do anything in the bible if we found another book let's say like like deuteronomy was found I don't think it would really change much just because our like day to day doesn't reference the Bible so much. Mm-hmm. It's much more like referencing the oral tradition decided like halacha. Yeah. And there's an oral tradition to reading the Torah as well, of which there is like a source of conflict between denominations in, in Judaism that like if you pick up like an art scroll Tanakh, so a copy of the Hebrew Bible put out by a very traditionalist Orthodox publisher that, that largely serves like a Haredi market. They will make translation choices that are almost exclusively influenced by the rabbinic tradition, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense. Like that, that is like the tradition of how those words are understood. If you were to walk into a conservative or reform synagogue, you will probably find that their Tanakh or their Chumash or whatever document you're finding the Bible in is using like some kind of adaptation on the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society translation, which is like a translation that takes the rabbinic approach and holds it in one hand and takes scholarly knowledge of ancient Near Eastern languages and things like that and like holds them in context and tries to find it like a truth between those. Mm-hmm. What about Surak's Katra as an oral tradition? Interesting. Was a little bit Jesus-y, I thought. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't relate to that at all. Do you? I mean Surak dies for their sins. <laughs> um, oh, okay. <laughs> so like I, I think we, we see him we don't we don't know the whole context, but yeah, definitely some like Jesus y vibes there. Um but it occurs to me also that like even if we accept that the vision Archer is having is the Katra of Surak, which I don't think we necessarily have to accept, like Maybe it is the the passed on Cyrenite meld. That doesn't mean that the Sirach that appears to Archer is like the authentic historical representation. And it's all made up and we don't know the rules and mind melds or whatever the writers want them to be in any moment. But I think that like, if the Katra has been held by a line of Vulcans for 1800 years and like passed from meld to meld from scholar to scholar over the generations... <laughs> then Surak has to be changed by each one of those vessels he's held within. And so, like, that oral tradition becomes the Surak that is within Archer. If the Cyrenites are taking that Katra and creating, like, a new Vulcan society out of it, it's interesting. Like, it's they're playing on the tradition of receiving and sending that Katra rather than the authentic original. And I think there, there's something quite Jewish in that. Yeah, that's definitely true. So we also watched uh, Discoveries at a season two episode, New Eden. Do you want to summarize it? Sure. So in season two of Discovery, they're looking for these seven red signals to solve a mystery. Discovery jumps to this distant planet after seeing one of the red signals, they find that there are humans on this planet who were transported there during World War Three. They go down to the planet trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> some, They have sort of a religious encounter down there. There's some folks who 
want to learn more about it. There's some prime directive discussions up on the ship. Discovery realizes the planet is like going to be destroyed and they they are basically able to stop this planet from being destroyed. <laughs> they have this big <laughs> meteor that is highly massive and they use it to divert debris from raining down on the planet and destroying it. It's sort of another in the series of like the Red Angels miracles that sort mm-hmm. of dot through the the first half of that season. This episode gives me goosebumps. <laughs> I love that jump sequence. Like any time that they that they do a black alert, I I really dig it. <laughs> um but I just thought like the the music and um I, the way it's shot, like, was very exciting. Pike sort of does a little religious-y thing to it. He, he, he has his line. Four drivers ready, Captain. Questions or concerns before we depart, Captain? If you're telling me that this ship can skip across the universe on a highway made of mushrooms, I kind of have to go in faith. And then he actually quotes loosely, I think, the book of Joshua. Be bold. Be brave. Be courageous. Black alert. It's a more Christian-y translation, and also at the end of the day, they uh, they save the planet by doing Joshua's signature move, which is a donut. A donut? You know, because Joshua would go around the cities and then they would collapse, <laughs> but they do like a big loop to, to, to prevent a city from collapsing. I see. I definitely <laughs> made that connection. <laughs> <laughs> This episode might be better for the podcast Star Trek and the Christians. Like, Pike, Pike's got some real Christian <laughs> vibes. Our sister podcast? <laughs> Which does not exist. Maybe that'll be our next show. <laughs> I feel like I'm grossly underqualified to be, <laughs> to be on that show. <laughs> Lex and I had talked about how in the canon, sometimes truths stand side by side. And... It's a blink and you miss it, but like Discovery makes a decision about which truth it's going to stand with because Star Trek actually has like two competing narratives of World War Three. There's like TOS and early TNG say it's like 30 million dead and it's in the 1990s. And don't send me your letters about how that's the eugenics wars. I don't care. <laughs> um, no, I want no canon complaints. <laughs> Um, and then first contact and like subsequent ones put it in the 21st century and it's 600 million dead. And again, I want to reiterate, I don't want your fan theory on this. Nobody put, the, put, put the pen down. <laughs> but you were just uh, saying how the fan theories should be canon too, or at least that's what Lex was saying. <laughs> and Discovery like makes a choice that they're going to go with one or the other, which I think is like a valid decision to make. But it's uh, it's interesting that like they're forced to make that choice. Also, it's like a weird reminder that Star Trek's utopia comes out of a horrific dystopia, which is like a nuclear war that totally destroys Earth. Yeah. Only Pike recognizes the building as a church. Yeah, he's like, oh yeah, you know, ancient religions of Earth that I am not following. <laughs> Owo says she grew up in a Luddite collective on Earth, but that they were non-believers. Oh, there's so much there that I, I think Owo is like a great character that we've only seen tiny little glimpses of, and I wish they'd show us more of her. 
It's funny that like through all of Star Trek, we know very, very little about how people like live on Earth. But clearly, she's like part of a group that has sort of a like a creed or a way of a way of living that maybe not totally modernist mm-hmm. or things like that. So they go into the church, and there's all these like hodgepodge of different religious symbols. Mm-hmm. They say not just Christianity, but Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shinto, and Wicca. What do you make of that church? Like mixing all those together? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that will happen at all. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I find it a little bit offensive just because like most of those religions don't necessarily have churches at all. Right. And it's like, yes, all of these religions combined into Christianity. And this is the church. (laughs) It was like all those emblems around like a a giant crucified Jesus. (laughs) And I just think that like... I don't know, putting a Star of David in in there has some, like, weird appropriative vibes, especially because, like, in our era, there's, like, like, so many creepy Christian attempts to, like, take over Jewy stuff and, like, weird fetishization of Mm -hmm. Jews. And (laughs) on Easter Sunday, I could hear at a church nearby, they were blowing shofars. Oh, my gosh, that's so weird. Put that away. Go do your own thing. (laughs) And, like... As much as I, like, strongly resent the view that, like, oh, Christianity minus Jesus equals Judaism, like, that is not true. But, like, there's no version of Jewish practice that has a Jesus in it that is not Christianity. Yeah. So, I don't know, it feels, like, really appropriative. Or, or like, Christian satyrs or that kind of stuff. I do think it's actually the first time, though, that Judaism gets gets specifically named in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Jews had been mentioned in by a holographic Nazi in Voyager, <laughs> um, but not not the religion. And there is a Jewish text in the church, and I think it was just a set piece, because the hodgepodge scroll that they have on the Bima, <laughs> it's got all kinds of different things sewn into it, but the bottom layer of it actually seems to be an Esther scroll. Interesting. I had to do some sleuthing. I had to screen cap it and like get the <laughs> contrast way up to actually make out what the letters were. But it's <laughs> it's like chapters one and two of Esther, which tells like the beginning of the Purim story. And I don't think that was anything. I think they wanted something that looked like old and religious-y. Chapter one and two of Esther is like exposition setting out who the characters and setting are in the Purim story. And it's like a little bit like whimsical and has some some like good puns and good dunks in it. But I don't think it relates to this episode at all. No, not even slightly. It also has a quote from the Quran sewn into it. When those who believe in our signs come to thee, say, peace be upon you. And it has a very kitschy coexist emblem <laughs> that's only been slightly modified. <laughs> I'm actually surprised that Discovery would do that in, I guess that was 2020, 2019. I didn't really think about it until we're talking about it now, but that is like quite deeply offensive. (laughs) I also just think Burnham's whole approach to religion is like, A, very Christian normative and B, like very like, like 16 year old edgelord who's just found like the atheism subreddit. Like, she's like, what if my religion is science? Like, put, put that <laughs> yeah, away. That, that, that's like, really nothing to do with what we're talking also, about Also, you should never say that because science is in no way or form a religion. You're not supposed to go anything on belief. 
That's like exactly the problem with like it, the modern view of science in in like many non-scientific spheres. You're even you're part of the problem, Burnham. Pike has some like lefty church vibes to him, and and I kind of dig it. I, that's like that's a kind of Christianity <laughs> that that I find like intellectually interesting, and like as a character, he says, um, "Thank you for the fellowship, and like peace be with you, and also with you," which is like very Catholic language. Although I think they changed it, and they don't say that anymore. They, I think, like all the interesting questions they raise about like faith would be more interesting if the Red Angel didn't turn out to be like. Michael Burnham in a spacesuit in her very special destiny. <laughs> yeah. But I do want to underscore that I like this episode. It's exciting and fun. Yeah, I really also liked in general the Red Angel stuff until it was, it's true, it was kind of disappointing what ended up happening. Yeah, literally she says the word mom when when they catch the Red Angel and I'm like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> Pike sort of modifies Clark's law and says any sufficiently intelligent extraterrestrial is indistinguishable from God. And I would go one step further and say any sufficiently sophisticated discovery storyline is going to turn out to be Michael Burnham. <laughs> it is a little bit unlike Star Trek, though. Discovery is very different, I find. Yeah, I. this is what I struggle with. I just feel like Discovery has great characters and like really fun ideas and it's like but then they flub it <laughs> they they go and do something really really dumb like that of like let's make it michael burnham i love like the arc of developing her from the mutineer to the captain who saves the future but you can do that without her having to be like a messianic figure yes and also she's not at all a teen player and that's not very star trek mm-hmm like the whole show is not very team player. Right. There's not much cohesion with the with the crew together. You know, like in Next Gen, they'd sit around the room and Picard would like take ideas and Worf would be like, let's shoot it, and Data would be like, Let's study it. And and then he'd pick Data. They don't do that on Discovery no. because nobody ever tells anybody that they have a bad idea on Discovery. Unless they're like saying it to someone who's obviously a villain. Interesting. I always feel like Burnham is like doing something that everybody else is like, oh, that's a bad idea. And then she does it and it's actually just the right thing to do. And <laughs> then everybody changes their mind and is like, wow, yay, Michael saved us. I do like so many things about Discovery. I just want them to be a little bit better. <laughs> Could you just be better? <laughs> I'm not saying I hate the show. I'm not saying you're fake Star Trek. I don't care that the ships are shiny. I just I just <laughs> want you to surprise me a little bit more and go a little deeper. I think the people who are watching take the show seriously and think a lot about it. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice to see like the writers play at that level. Although I really will say season three, I did really feel was playing closer to that level. Mm -hmm. At this point in season two, I was super interested. It was, yeah. it was only when they get to the midpoint where you realize, oh, this is Michael, that it was like, ah, there we go. <laughs> and And by the end of the season, those last two episodes where it's just like, 120 minutes of pew 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 I, I it didn't hold my attention at all it's like the more explosions you add the less interesting it is because it's like nothing matters anymore <laughs> so Hava, yeah did you find an afi Komen? i did i felt that what really needs to happen in judaism right now is sort of what happened on vulcan and i deeply wish that a text 
of that form were found to show that many of the practices of Orthodox Judaism is not necessarily the way to do it. And I kind of see like, this is maybe slightly offensive to people, but I kind of see the Cyrenites as like the reformed Jews trying to redirect something that's gone astray. And that that's my afikoman, I guess. I really hope that we get some Cyrenites into the greater Jewish community and kind of redirect some of the problematic customs that, that go on. Nice. What about you, Josh? Did you find an afikoman? I did. So mine's from the Discovery episode. Saru says... Being the only Kelpian in Starfleet, I know how it feels to want to prove your worth. I was so determined to be a good example of my race that I learned 90 different Federation languages. And this made me think of like this really complicated issue of like the so-called model minority phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It manifests differently in different places, but I think of it as like the stereotypes that a majority society has for like certain, usually upwardly mobile minority groups and often that's like in contrast to other groups in the united states it gets ascribed to jews and asians and sometimes some other groups and there's like a lot to unpack there it is like even though it's thought of as like a positive stereotype it has like a negative that comes with it of people thinking of those groups as sneaky or undeserving or having superpowers or it like ties into like gender and like demasculization of like Jewish men and Asian men in American pop culture and to like put down other groups I think in the United States it's it's used to like put down black people and Hispanics and and there's like a whole lot to unpack here that I cannot do before this episode ends mm -hmm. but it's interesting to see how like Saru feels the need to like fit some kind of hypothetical ideal of what a model minority even in the federation needs to look like yeah that's interesting i really like that have you ever been someone's first jew oh yeah it's very like that i went to a middle school where there were like i think there were three jews in the in the whole year and so i was almost everyone's first jew there <laughs> You really got to make sure you don't come across a certain way. I definitely came across a really bad way, but I was like 11. So oh. I'm sorry for all the anti-Semites that I must have created at <laughs> middle school. Please go meet other Jews <laughs> or even me now. I've improved. <laughs> Although, if you went to Kane Middle School and didn't know any other Jews and you're listening to this podcast, I, I do want to hear from you specifically. Please <laughs> please do email me, StarTrekInTheJews at gmail.com. <laughs> all right, that's probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's all for Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you so much for listening. Big thanks to our Rebel Alert guest, Lex Rofberg of the podcast Judaism Unbound. Our opening fanfare is arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Your Hebrew school homework for next month, the original series episode, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, and Deep Space Nine's Far Beyond the Stars, one of my favorites. We'll see you next month. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening.